Now, before we jump into what we're going to talk about today, I think I need to tell you a little bit about my youngest son, Justice. Justice is my youngest son, and he's almost 13, and uh, Justice looks forward to his report card. I don't know. Guess that from his mom. Justice looks forward to his report card. He looks forward to it with eager anticipation, and, and, and he's looking forward to it because he works really hard, and what he's hoping for is straight A's. And so he looks forward to that with eager excitement, and, and, and he wants to see that report card. But I need you to understand that he doesn't look forward to that report card because he looks forward to the satisfaction of a job well done. No, no, no. You see, there is a video game store in Quakertown called The Game Inn. And if you have straight A's, you can walk into the game in and get 50% off anything that you want in the store. That's pretty cool, right? One item, 50% off. So Justice, he, he, there was one time he comes, and he comes home with his report card. It's in a sealed envelope, and, he, and he's so excited. He goes, Dad, he rushes in first thing out of his mouth. Can we go to the game in? And I'm like, maybe. We'll see. Sure. Whatever. Maybe. And so he sits down, and we open up the report card together, and, he, and he's leaning over my shoulder, and he's got this big smile on his face, and we start to go down the list. A, A, A. And his smile is getting bigger and bigger until it evaporates like that. Because we got to the last grade, and it wasn't an A. And just like that, the 50% discount was gone. It was gone. I mean, I still took him to the store. Just I'm not a bad dad. I still took him to the store. <laughs> But the 50% discount was gone. You know, we're going to be reading today from the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the last book of the Bible. And in that book, at the beginning of the book, there are seven letters that are written to seven churches. And in those letters, we almost get a report card. A report card for these churches. Now, the first church that we're going to look at today, the church that we're going to actually study today is the church of Ephesus. And as you look through that report card, things look like, or look really good. They look really good. It's almost like they got straight A's. Good, 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 good stuff here, good stuff there. Then all of a sudden, something happens. There's a twist. Something changes. And they're made aware of where they're not just not getting an A, but they're failing. And what's at stake is not just a 50% discount. No, what's at stake is something far greater than that. Before we jump into Revelation, you see we're in the middle of a series called Ecclesia, where we're taking a look at the ancient future church. And as we take a look at the ancient church, as we take a look at the future church, what we're hoping for is to understand how we need to do church here in the present. And I said that we were going to look at Revelation, we're going to look at these letters to the seven churches, but before we do that, I think we need to talk about Revelation just a little bit before we go into these letters. You see, Revelation is, is filled with different illustrations. It's, it's filled with images, and at times it can actually be kind of weird or, or, or confusing. It's almost like a, a picture book, Revelation. And, and what we see in it is this ultimate reality that we are, are, are given a glimpse of as the veils are raised, and we are allowed to glimpse this reality that is beyond our observable abilities. And what we need to understand is that there's different approaches to the book of Revelation throughout church history, throughout different churches around the world. There's different approaches. And what you need to know about Calvary Church is that we're a church that majors on the absolutes. We believe in absolutes, convictions, and preferences. The absolutes we will not compromise on. 
We will not compromise on the absolutes. They are the foundational principles of Christianity. But we understand with convictions and preferences that at times we may disagree. And when it comes to Revelation, at times people may disagree, and we're okay with that, and we think that it's important to study this book. But we also think that it's important to study it with the proper understanding. You see, when you look at Revelation, you really need to look at it through the filter of Revelation chapter 1. You see, it's so easy to get preoccupied with the details and the images and all these different things that you lose sight of the purpose of the book. But in Revelation chapter 1, we get the lens through which we need to be reading this book. Revelation chapter 1, verse 14. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. All this imagery and what's being described, who is being described is Jesus here. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. The filter through which we need to look at Revelation is Jesus. What is being revealed in the book of Revelation is Jesus. Revelation isn't about us, it's about Jesus. And while it's important to look at all the imagery, important to look at all the details, and important to study this book, if we study it just kind of focused on ourselves, we're going to miss the point. The point is revealing Jesus, and Jesus isn't being revealed as this flowy hair, meek and mild person that we plaster up on Christian bookstores. No, he's being revealed as this eternal, victorious, powerful king. And the point of Revelation is that his kingdom will not end. So we have to look at that. The point of Revelation is Jesus. It is an eternal, victorious king that we are reading about. And so we get to chapter 2 of Revelation. And Jesus, the words of Jesus are spoken through seven letters. There are seven letters written to seven churches. And these are the words of Jesus to these churches. And what we need to understand is first two things. First, There were very real churches. These seven churches actually existed. There really was an Ephesus. There really was a Smyrna. There really was a Pergamon, etc. But what we also need to understand is that seven is the number for completeness. It's the number for wholeness. While this was written to uh, very real churches, it's also written to the complete and whole church. And so there are things that we need to understand in there, and there are lessons that we need to understand in those letters as well. So let's take a look at Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And today what we're going to look at is just one of those letters. We're going to look at the letter to the church of Ephesus. And in this letter, we're going to learn about a commendation, we're going to learn about a correction, and we're going to learn about a covenant. A commendation, a correction, and a covenant. Revelation chapter 2. We're going to, we're going to go through it in little chunks, okay? Just so you know, we're not going to read through the whole letter. We're going to actually go through in little chunks. We're going to read verses 1 to 3 right now. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. This is the beginning of a report card. 
And it almost looks like straight A's, right? This is a church that's known for its hard work. It's known for its perseverance. It doesn't tolerate wicked people. It exposes false teachers and leaders. It's a church that has endured hardships and continue to persevere without getting weary. What we have here is a solid Bible-believing church. If I was moving to Ephesus at that time, I am looking up Community Church of Ephesus, and I am taking its membership classes. Because everything that you read in this, in the, in this uh, commendation is, is everything that we would want to find in a church, everything that we would look for in a church. But there are four words. There are four words that I don't want us to rush through. There are four words that are spoken that I think help us understand this commendation and everything that will come next. Four words are this. I know your deeds. I know your deeds. And if you were really to study those words, if you were really to study that statement, what you get is a very powerful statement. Jesus doesn't just say to the church of Ephesus, he doesn't say, I've heard about you. Uh, I, I've, I know your reputation. Someone's told me about you. No, what he's saying is something far, far deeper and far, far more intimate. Jesus is revealing that he knows everything about this church. It's almost as if the church of Ephesus is lying there exposed and naked. And Jesus says, I see everything. I see all of it. I see the good. I see the bad. I see all of it. I know you. I know you. And because of this intimate knowledge, Jesus cannot stop with just giving a commendation. He tells them what they're doing right, but he knows everything about them. He knows their deeds, and he can't stop with just doing that. And so he gives a correction. He gives a correction. And in this correction, Jesus moves past the outside and gets to the state of what's going on inside. He moves past the outside and gets to the state of what's going on inside. Let's go back into Revelation 2. Picking up at verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What is the correction? What does Jesus say in this correction? He says, you have lost your first love. You are thinking all the right things. You are saying all the right things. You are doing all the right things. But it's not enough. It's not enough. Because God doesn't want our to-do list. He wants our heart. He wants our passion. He wants everything that we're focused on to be focused on him. What he wants it's our relationship with us. The point of the gospel is the restoration of relationship, the restoration of relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And what you need to understand is that Jesus has no interest in an open relationship. Jesus doesn't desire to be one of our many competing loves. He, he isn't looking for a casual relationship. Jesus made us his first love so that we could make him our first love. Jesus made us his first love so that we can make him our first, first love. And love demands all of us, not a little bit of us, not some of us, not most of us. Love demands all of us. 
And remember who Jesus is talking to in this letter. He's not talking to people who are outside of the church. He's not talking to people who have just completely rejected God and not had their eyes open to his love. He is talking to the church. He's talking to people who have experienced that first love, who have experienced it at some point. Look at the phrase in the Bible. It says, look at how far you have fallen. Look at how far you have fallen. And we don't really know what happened. We don't really know what happened to the church of Ephesus. We don't really know what occurred to have them lose their first love. I, I tend to think it's not the trials and tribulations because that's part of the commendation. So I, I tend to think it's not that. I tend to think it wasn't just hardships. We don't know. But something happened and they, and they lost their first love. And, and, and I don't know what happened with them, but I know at times in my own life, is that I can be so focused on religion at times that I begin to lose focus of the cross. And even more drastic than that, I begin to forget how much I needed the cross. How much I need the cross. Because what happens? Here's what happens. Because instead of focusing on Jesus, and when I focus on Jesus, I see my depraved nature. I see my sinful nature. And I see my need for the cross. Instead of focusing on Jesus and his holiness and his love, I begin to look around me and I begin to play the comparison game with other people. And I begin to say, well, not doing so good, but check this guy out. Or I'm not doing so good, but look at her. Or I don't even do that first part. I'm just pointing my fingers at everyone else. Look how bad that person is. Look how bad that person is. And when I begin to look at others, I begin to look away from the cross and I begin to, to, to lose sight of, of my need for the cross and I lose sight of, of, the, of the amazing weight of the beauty of the cross. How amazing it is when I look at the cross and I understand that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. While I was rebelled against him, while I was his enemy, Christ died for me. That's how powerful his love is. And when I, when I look at the beauty of the cross, my heart needs to, it needs to stir. It needs to be filled with passion. It needs to be filled with affection for Jesus. I don't do good for the sake of doing good. I, I don't stop doing bad for the sake of stop doing bad. Moralists do that. Moralists do that. My life changes because of my overwhelming love for Jesus, my, my overwhelming awakening to the beauty of the cross. My affections are stirred. My heart is stirred. My love is stirred. My passion is stirred. That's why my behavior changes. This is the drive, and yes, results have to happen. Yes, Yes, we are expected to change our behaviors. I mean, John is the one who wrote the book of Revelation. He actually uh, wrote several letters. We studied them a few months ago here at Calvary Church, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he also wrote the Gospel of John. We studied that. And in those letters, John says, uh, he, he points out the truth of just, they will know you um, by your love for one another. If you love me, you would keep my commandments. John writes these things because the truth of the matter is our actions do reveal our love for Jesus. Our actions do reveal our love for Jesus. Our love for other people reveals our love for Jesus. Our willingness to speak the truth of the Bible reveals our love for Jesus. Our hearts that burn with justice reveal our love for Jesus, right? Like our, our, our changed behavior reveal our love for Jesus, right? Right? Sure, they do. But those actions, while they may reveal our love for Jesus, were never meant to replace our love for Jesus. They're meant to reveal. They're not meant to replace. And at times I think that I might have it backwards in my own life. 
And then I replace that love and, and that pursuit of that, that passion and love with just good actions and good behavior. What Jesus wants, he wants all of me. He doesn't just want me to change my behavior, he wants me. He wants an intimate relationship with me, filled with love. You see, someone who loves people but doesn't love Jesus is just a philanthropist. Someone who speaks truth but doesn't love Jesus is just a rule follower. Someone who, who, who loves justice but doesn't love Jesus is just a social activist. We weren't called to be philanthropists. We weren't called to just be rule followers. We weren't called to be social activists. We were called to be disciples of Jesus. And that has to be anchored in a love for him. It has to be anchored in a love for him. And that's important because what, is, what does Jesus do? He calls this church to repent calls this church to repent. And I think at times we, we have repentance a little bit confused. At times we simply associate repentance with um, feeling shame. Or, or maybe we associate repentance with just understanding that our actions are wrong. Or maybe we stop doing this and we do this and we change our behaviors. That's not re repentance. The positive expression of those are the results of repentance. Repentance is simply turning. Repentance is an about face. It means I was walking this way, and now I go this way. I was looking this way, but now I look this way. Repentance is about turning to Jesus. Repentance is about turning to Jesus. And what Jesus is saying to the church of Ephesus is this, return to me. Return to me. You've lost your first love. Return to me. And that's the beauty of the gospel. As you look through the Bible over and over again, you see God saying that over and over again. Return to me. Return to me. Return to me. And the way that we return to God is through Jesus. And the impact of repentance is not just one that is a personal impact. In fact, the impact of repentance is something that is far greater than that. It's far greater than that. Again, I, I told you earlier that the number seven is is the number for completeness and wholeness. And so that these letters are actually written to the complete whole church, and there are things that we need to learn from all of them. But also, also, I told you that these were very real churches. And what's amazing about that, what's really cool in regards to this letter, is that we actually get to read about one of the early stories of that first love for the church of Ephesus. It's found in the book of Acts chapter 19. And in the book of Acts chapter 19, there's these seven sons of a Jewish priest. And they're going around and, and they're trying to cast out demons and, and they're going and talking to people and what they're saying, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul talks about, we want you to go. The problem was is that they didn't know Jesus. They were saying the right words. They were doing the right things, but they didn't have a relationship with Jesus. And so what happens in this story is that they literally get the pants beaten off of them. Literally get the pants beaten off of them. And then look what happens after that. Acts chapter 19, verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This 
is an early moment of first love with the church. And what happens is, is this, this amazing, powerful repentance. Again, this is not people outside of the church. This is the church themselves. And this is amazing, powerful repentance. And now we don't go to the store. I don't, I don't go to Giant or Wawa and pay for my hoagie with drachmas. So when we read drachmas, we might not understand how much of repentance this was. 50,000 drachmas. A drachma was a day's wage. 50,000 days worth of wages was destroyed in this act of repentance. This is a powerful act of repentance. And what is the result? What is the result of their repentance? Verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. The impact of repentance isn't just personal. It actually can advance the gospel. Let's go back to Revelation. I remember I told you that Revelation is like a picture book, and there's a warning that comes in this correction that Jesus gives. There's a warning of removing this lampstand. What you need to know about the lampstand is that it can have two meanings. It can have two meanings. The lampstand can be referring to removing the light, which is the presence of Jesus. It can also mean witness. Either way, it has the same effect. If Jesus is not present, then your witness is impact, and the gospel cannot be advanced to the way it needs to be advanced. Because it's not primarily about our actions or our reputation or anything about that. It's about Jesus. So when it comes to the church, what is the flavor of the church? The flavor of the church needs to be the flavor of Jesus. Growing up, I would go to visit my grandparents in Puerto Rico, and in Puerto Rico, you would find these carts of, of people who were selling uh, piragua. And piragua is basically like a snow cone, you know, shaved ice. Uh, and, but in New York, when we came back home, there also would be guys who would sell piragua. And uh, in the playground of the school, when I was in middle school, what would happen is you'd see this guy, and he would begin to walk down the block, and he's pushing a shopping cart. And in that shopping cart is a big block of ice wrapped in a towel with all these bottles with different colored liquid in it. And you just would buy, and he'd just be walking down, and he'd go, piragua. And he's just walking down, piragua. And you'd hear that, and it's like 75 cents. You know, that's not a bad deal. And so you run over there, and you go over there, and you order this snow cone, or whatever you want to call it. Um, very unsanitary, by the way. Very unsanitary. It's a guy with a towel in a shopping cart. I don't know what we were thinking back then, but it tasted really good. Now, what happens if I would go up to that guy, and I will say, one mango? And he goes, got it. And he unfolds that nasty towel. And he takes this metal thing and he starts to scrape it. And then he puts it inside a cup and he piles up that ice. And then he reaches for the bottle, right? And a mango, you should have an orange liquid, just in case you didn't know. You should have an orange liquid. But what happens if he reaches over and he grabs a red one and he pours strawberry all over that? And then he gives it to me and he goes, one mango just for you. The actions were right. The words were right, but the flavor's wrong. The flavor's wrong. A church can find itself in a place where the actions are right and the words are right, but the flavor is not right. And that is a dangerous place to be because it impacts the witness of the gospel. But I mean, is that really important? I mean, isn't it just about doing the right thing? Or, or isn't it just about good doctrine? As long as we know the right stuff, isn't that, isn't that what matters? 
This whole first love thing. I mean, isn't it just about like just getting it right though, right? No, it's not. I mean, look at what happens in that correction. Jesus gives another commendation, right? He gives another commendation. He talks about how the church uh, hates the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we don't really know who the Nicolaitans are. We really don't. Uh, They could be just supposed to represent someone. Uh, Church history does talk about this. Uh, uh, Irenaeus and Hippolytus, they're both church history people. They're not part of the Bible. They're part of church history. They're people who were early on in the church. And they talk about the Nicolaitans. They talk about how uh, they may have come from uh, a deacon, from Nicholas in, uh, in the book of Acts. Some people say, no, it's not from him, it's from this, for whatever, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who they are. What we need to understand is that all that matters is that they're teaching something that's not just against Jesus, it's something that Jesus hates. And this church is commended again for hating their teachings. But it's still not enough. It's still not enough. Why? Because you can hate what God hates. And you can even love what God loves and not love God. You can hate what God hates, and you can even love what God loves and not love God. And that's not okay. We are called to repent and return to our first love. We are called to return to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. So Jesus commends the church early on, and he gives them a good report card. They look like they're getting straight A's. Their 50% discount is on their way. But then he gives them a correction. And in that correction, they realize that something is at stake that is far greater than a 50% discount. And in that correction, he calls them to repent, to return to him. A commendation, a correction, and then he gives them a covenant. He provides them with a promise. Look at verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who is victorious. Where does that victory come from? It must be about persevering, right? It must be about uh, persevering in the midst of heart. No, because that's the commendations that came before the correction. What is victory? Those who end the race with Jesus are victorious. Those who end the race with Jesus. We can have victory because Jesus is faithful and keeps his promises. And his promises is that if you are with me, I will give you, what does it say? I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Notice what it doesn't say. If you're victorious, you have won this prize. If you are victorious, you have earned this right. It's a gift. It's a gift. And it's a gift that can only come from Jesus. The promise is a gift. And again, it isn't about our to-do list. It's about Jesus. And the question at the end of this letter was, as Jesus gives this faithful promise and promises to remain faithful, he could have abandoned the churches. He could have said, you lost your first love, now get out of here. But he ends with a promise. And Jesus keeps his promises. And he remains faithful. He says, all you need to do is turn to me. Return to me. Repent. The question 
at the end of the letter of the church of Ephesus is one of love. This, this covenant is based uh, in love. It's one of passion. It isn't one of checklists. It's a covenant in love, and it's a call for us to love back. Jesus gave up everything to make us his first love, and his desire is that he becomes our first love. So I've been talking about report cards. I've been talking about all sorts of things. So just so you know, pop quiz. Put away your Bible. Put away your phone. Just be quiet for a little bit. Maybe you close your eyes. Same online, same in Quakertown. Pop quiz. Ask yourself this question. What drives me? What drives me? When it comes to my Christian walk, when it comes to this thing that we call Christianity, when it comes to this thing we call church, what drives me? Is it, is it, am I driven by the thoughts of others and trying to, to please other people around me and just make sure that I don't let them down? Am I maybe driven by, well, it's just the right thing to do? Or, or am I driven by like, well, I grew up in the church. This is, this is what I've learned. This is kind of tradition. Or am I driven by a heart that is so passionate and so filled with love for Jesus? Am I driven by a heart that is gazing at the cross and the beauty of the cross and my need for the cross? What drives me? What drives me? What drives us as a church? Because we can get a lot of commendations for good programs. We could get a lot of commendations for good events. We could get a lot of commendations for good worship, good preaching, whatever. If we lose our first love, it's pointless. It's pointless. What drives us? Jesus loves you. He loves you. And what he wants in return is for you to love him back. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for this powerful love. And Lord, we ask you that you would ignite it in our hearts today, that we would have a love back for you, that we'd be filled with such a passion, such an overwhelming awe of your love, such an overwhelming awe of your filled promises, such an overwhelming awe of your, of, of your grace and your mercy that our affections will be stirred in our heart, that we would go around telling people about you because we can't stop ourselves, because we're so in love with you that we're like, I got to tell you about Jesus, that we would base everything we do, all of our decisions around love for you. Fill us with an overwhelming passion, an overwhelming desire for you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 